back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute and resident on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and I am joined in this, uh, this new iteration of the Knox Cellar, or Cellars, uh, by uh, Nathan O'Black and Dr. Joe Boot. We're back for season six, and as we get into uh, this season, we've had, uh, we've had a few discrete episodes uh, so far. It's been a privilege to have guests and fellows and, uh, and be together. But our theme that we're going to, uh, or we're, we're going to embark on, I guess you call it a, maybe a mini series. We probably won't take up the whole season with this, but we're getting into the subject of Thomism. Uh, that's uh, for anyone who, maybe that's a new word for you. Uh, it comes from the, uh, the thought and the influence of Thomas Aquinas and Aquinas himself, even if you know nothing about him, has had a profound cultural influence in the West, uh, not only on on thought, but in, in any major city you drive through and you will see a Catholic church, maybe a Catholic secondary school that bears his name uh, in uh, any English-speaking nation in the world and beyond. So there, there's a... Uh, there's a lot to uh, to consider in the, in dealing with or thinking about talking about Thomas, and today uh, we're going to consider just where where this influence came from, some of the uh, the broad strokes of who he was and what he taught, and some of the some some of the issues for why that uh, that influence is persisting. And in some cases, in Protestantism, even uh, even finding a resurgence. So, by God's help, that's where we're going to be going today. Before we get into the meat and uh, potatoes of our discussion, Nate, let's uh, let's talk about what's going on with us, uh, with what's going on with the institute, what's going on in your uh, your copper pans hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> They won't see that on this audio podcast, Ryan. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to take a screenshot of that. Yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my lovely cottage on uh, on the Bay of Fundy. I made the comment, it's a bit uh, a bit too much uh, Martha Stewart for my liking, but uh, the view is, is quite spectacular, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to get to some of the housekeeping items uh, for what we're up to at the Ezra Institute uh, over the next month or so, we're we're getting down to the wire uh, with our next uh, in-person residential training program. That's the Christianity and Culture Colloquium. We've been mentioning that for the the past several weeks now, yep. and it's two weeks 40- away. Yeah, two weeks away. That's right, and it's it's nearly full, uh, which has been great to see a flurry of registrations in the past week or so. But uh, the program, it's our four-day introduction to Christian worldview and cultural apologetics. And uh, this year it runs from October 18th to the 21st in Port Colborne, Ontario, which uh, I mentioned this last week is just across the border uh, from Buffalo, New York. It's it's close to mm-hmm. the United States. And of course, uh, restrictions have now officially uh, dropped here in Canada. So we, we hope to still have a few of our US friends make the trip across the border and join us for their those four days. And uh, it's open to all adults, our first time we've ever uh, offered a program uh, to any adult. And uh, speakers for this year, uh, we've got Joe, uh, Aaron Rock, Andre Schutten, uh, Dr. Ted Fenske, Michael Thiessen, and uh, several others joining us for the four days. And as I mentioned, it's, it's very nearly full now. So get your tickets while they're still available from our website, EzraInstitute.com, where you'll you'll find more information on the program there as well. And uh, just one other thing to quickly mention before we get into our discussion, but uh, this week, uh, at the end of this week and into the weekend, is the Fight, Laugh, Feast rally, 
And uh, mm-hmm. many of you who listen to us on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, you, you'd already be aware of this, uh, this conference coming up. And uh, we have a book table there. Our people will be there at the conference, and we'd love to get to uh, meet some of you, uh, pass on some of the information about our training programs and uh, our conferences that we plan to run in the U.S. in 2023. So come on over to our book table, say hi Mm -hmm. to us there. We'd love to meet you. Terrific. Oh, that uh, that reminds me, one more uh, quick announcement on... For those of you who have been uh, been listening and you're based in the United States, uh, a few of you have uh, have mentioned that you'd you'd like to uh, to buy resources from us from EzraPress.com, but international shipping from Canada is a killer, and I'm totally sympathetic to that. That usually I'm usually the victim of that. We have to get our most of our good books from you guys down there, but. Uh, appreciate your uh, your desire to support as of now you can order uh, from ezrapress.com and get domestic american shipping rates so we've got to, we've got a distribution center set up locally in the united states american domestic shipping rates it's going to be a lot easier a lot less cost prohibitive for american listeners to get to, to get ezra press books so that's uh, that's on now. You just go go to the uh, the website as usual, uh, fill your cart, and when your mailing address shows up as an American mailing address, it's going to get you American rates automatically. Hmm. So that's uh, we're pretty pretty pleased about that. That's live now. Okay, thanks uh, thanks Nate. I guess that uh, I'll just continue on here. Keep um, going. <laughs> yeah, that's it for me. Where are we? Okay, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> appreciate it. That's what I get for jumping in right at the end. All right. Um, so, Joe, uh, we've, uh, as we mentioned, our our talk today is on Thomas Aquinas and his thought, which is uh, known as Thomism. Uh, maybe, maybe to uh, start out. You could uh, you could just comment on there. There seems to be there uh, for anyone who has been paying attention in evangelicalism and even particularly uh, within Reformed circles where we we often find ourselves. Uh, there is a resurgence of interest uh, amongst confessionally Reformed Christians in the uh, in the thought and theology of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and that uh, you could probably quantify that, but maybe it's uh, maybe it's more helpful to say, to just ask and answer. Wh- why do you think that is? Well, I think the the probably the most important thing to say initially in response to that is that uh, we're living in challenging and difficult times for the church, and. We have faced now um, 80, 70, 80 years of fairly radical uh, de-Christianization. We've seen the, the um, uh, decades now of the repeal of Christian law. Um, and so I'm talking now specifically about the, the period following World War II. Um, we have seen the radical transformation um, of the West and um, increasingly now a precipitous slide into decadence with some, let's say, hopeful signs here and there of, um, of a counter-reaction uh, beginning. But basically, um, Christian people, the Christian church, is facing unprecedented times, uh, the, the likes of which and, and the character of which uh, are, of course, different, but the likes of which we haven't seen for 1500 years. Hmm. Um, You know, Christians in the West for centuries have lived um, in what we might call a a broadly, imperfectly, of course, but a broadly Christianized culture. Uh, We called it Christendom. And now all of a sudden we find ourselves in, in really the space of a couple of generations, if we took a generation to be 40 years. 
uh, a time of um, intense uh, pressure upon Christians in the church in in our relationship to culture, in our relationship to the uh, what we might call the real issues in um, political, legal, educational, social life. And that means that Christians will cast about for uh, um, models, for anchors, for examples, um, for uh, those Christians who have spoken uh, to the issue of the relationship of, of uh, Christianity and culture, of church and state, and uh, look for, begin to look for answers. Now, there is, um, and we'll come on in a moment, I think, to a bit of a discussion about the some of the strange anomalies, some of some of the, the something of the bizarreness of uh, a retrenchment in our in um, Thomism, uh, which takes you back right into the uh, depths of thinking of Greek philosophers like Aristotle, primarily, and their view of of human life, social life, political life. Um, but in um, in Thomas Aquinas, uh, who I know that you're going to give us some a brief biographical info on in a moment, um, we we find a Christian in a living in a very different era and a different time who was at least thinking seriously about these issues. And uh, so, I think the reason that we're seeing a resurgence of interest in uh, Thomas Aquinas and in Thomism or Neo Thomism. Uh, is twofold. One, the cultural pressure we're under that I've just mentioned. And secondly, uh, and perhaps uh, a little more cheekily, uh, the desire not to seek an answer to uh, the vicissitudes of our cultural moment in a more robust reformational uh, response, in a more Kuyperian, uh, dare I even say theonomic, a response to our cultural situation. In other words, rather than looking to those who would say we need to uh, take a distinctly Christian view, a distinctly biblical view of these issues, we need to go to Revelation itself in Scripture, and we need to recognize who Jesus Christ is as Lord over the totality of all of life, and we need to start applying the fullness of that word to the totality of life, for some Christians, that message is far too radical. It doesn't sound cosmopolitan. It doesn't sound egalitarian. It doesn't sound equalitarian. And uh, it doesn't sound like it's a good fit with the secular neo-pagan moment in which we're in. It doesn't sound plausible to, some, to, to many Christians' ears that we could really have a distinctly Christian view of everything that roots itself in Christ's lordship and his revelation in the Bible. And if you are a professing Christian and you don't want to go that route in the Christian's relationship to culture, where do you go? Uh, what do you look to? Mm -hmm. um, do you just say, well, um, we can only look to the secular philosophers and um, we just have to accept secular culture as it is? That is the answer of some. We are merely uh, humble supplicants in a multicultural society begging for a seat at the table. We forget, of course, that Christ claims to own the table. Um, right. But that's where many Christians think that that's all we have. We are, we, and, and we are simply waiting for Perusia. We are waiting for the return of the Lord. And in the meantime, we snatch a few brands from the burning in evangelism, but we have really nothing to say to cultural life. Um, but other Christians... Uh, perhaps those who are a little more sophisticated are saying, okay, no, we do have a serious situation here and we can't um, simply stick our heads in the sand and not respond with a political theology. Um, I would prefer um, a Christian political philosophy. We'll come to why that distinction would be important at another episode. Um, but uh, there are at least those who think, well, no, we do need to think about these things with some rigor and therefore they are looking for an alternative to both the radical secularism, but also the, the reformational response that emerges primarily from uh, the Dutch Reformation and going to uh, the likes of Rowan um, van Prinster and Abraham Piper and Herman Boyerverd and, and those who come out of that tradition like Cornelius van Til and R.J. Rashduni and others who've, who've thought along the lines of 
uh, social and political and cultural life um, in a reformational way, um, the Thomistic crowd would say, no, well, while we have tradition on our side, they would say as evangelical, we are looking to a classical, reformed, um, neo-Thomist or Thomistic response, and that's how we we have to find an answer to the problems of our culture. We have to look to um, uh, the common good, principles of the common good, to natural reason, to natural law, uh, and not the um, these radicals like Boot and others who seem to want to assert the lordship of Jesus Christ um, over every area of life and thought, and in particular, biblical revelation. And so mm. that's why that's probably a, a little bit of a longer answer than you were hoping for. But uh, I think that's why I think we are seeing this resurgence. And it's why very often these Thomists are sadly, in a rather sectarian way, positioning themselves as responding to the Van Tills of this world, to a presuppositional reformational approach. We are anti uh, the presuppositional apologists. We're anti the, the reformational transformationalists. Um, we are the Thomists and almost seem to want to um, uh, take a fairly sectarian approach to this, uh, which I hope we're, we're not going to do. We're going we're gonna to discuss these issues in a, in a fashion where we look to the positives, I think, of what Aquinas was trying to say and do but come to the heart of the of the serious problems and why Thomism, in the end, we're going to argue in this series, is not the solution. Right. It's, but it's a, uh, we're, we're hoping for, we're planning for a, uh, a balanced and measured and realistic assessment here. That nobody, uh, nobody wins when we knock over straw men. So That's right. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. Uh, once we, yeah, get to get deeper into Thomas's thought. Uh, that will uh, that will flesh out, and we'll try to uh, try to present that. If, let him speak for himself. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, yeah. just before you jump into that biographical sketch of Aquinas, which I think is is what you're prepared to do next. Just this goes along really well with what uh, Joe's talking about. But Joe, you mentioned some anomalies. And ironies present in, in this kind of debate. I mean, one of them that we've talked about often before is there's this resurgent affinity for Aquinas and Thomism, and um, we, we we see it mainly amongst the the Reformed community. And uh, you know, of course, those folks would hold to a belief in sola scriptura, but they're often telling us to fill in the blanks where scripture is silent uh, with with Aristotle via Aquinas. And, and I think we'll probably get into that conversation uh, at a more deeper level later on in this series. But I, I, that, that's something I think many of us have noticed as a significant irony through this whole discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of of profound ironies, actually, of Protestant Reformed people looking to Thomas Aquinas as the solution to either the churches or societal ills in our present moment. We we have to have sympathy with Thomas Aquinas himself. We'll come to, to the reason why in a moment. Um, and we have to understand him in the context in which he lived and the peculiar challenges that, uh, uh, and the task that um, he believed he was facing. Um, but there's a number of things uh, that are uh, strange about evangelicals, uh, Protestants, especially Reformed people, looking to Thomas Aquinas. Um, his view of sort of a metaphysical theology, for example, that's again rooted in Aristotle, that we can develop... Um, by way of negation, uh, and this will be a subject I think we'll probably pick up on uh, in one of our uh, sessions as we go through this series, that we can actually develop very um, concrete ideas about God um, purely by human reason, um, that we can actually argue and prove through natural reason. Um, And this, of course, is the argument between you know, our apologetic tradition in the transcendental uh, tradition, the presuppositional uh, tradition, and over against the classical apologetics, the notion that we can uh, take 
so-called truths of natural reason um, and uh, from nature, in inverted commas, which is very much a, a, an idea of nature taken over from Greek philosophy, and prove the existence of God, God as a kind of pure form, from the world of sense and develop things like cosmological arguments from motion um, that will take us uh, back to God as though we're in any way establishing the reality of the living God, the triune God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ by such arguments. So you've got um, ideas of natural theology that it would be very strange for evangelical Protestants to be looking to. Um, the Reformed tradition has been very strong, uh, if you look at the Reformed confessions, on the importance of God's law word and the Bible as primary, as fundamental. And yet Thomism would take us into um, uh, and deep into the idea of natural law, um, which is basically in, in Thomism, in Thomistic thought, the... Um, uh, the, the bridge between eternal law um, in God's reason and creation. So it's the human corollary of an idea of eternal law, which, again, I want to save that for another episode of this whole idea that there are eternal laws. That would seem to, to violate creator-creature distinction. There is creation law, but creation isn't eternal. God alone is eternal. Um, and so... Uh, the notion that we 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 should be finding our primary resources in abstract notions of natural law that find their origins in Stoic and then Aristotelian philosophy, I think is significant. But also at the other end of things, not just at the philosophical, uh, classical, pagan tradition end of things, but there's some other ironies as well, because Aquinas was very strong um, and to be commended. Um, for his conviction that um, uh, God's authority and God's moral law um, bound princes and rulers and kings, and that actually the church could even declare the authority of a human government null and void uh, based on their violation of God's word. Uh, that's pretty different to the sort of perspectives um, we've been hearing the last couple of years, don't you think? Um, uh, that's like what yeah, people accuse you of. <laughs> Right, precisely. Some of the things that uh, that Thomas Aquinas was quite comfortable saying about the authority of uh, the church, about the authority of God's moral law, many of these sort of neo-Thomists today within the evangelical community would shy uh, well away from um, and would want to distance themselves. Again, um, Aquinas was concerned with uh, very much the justification of um, a papal theocracy. And of course, we don't believe in a papal theocracy as, as reformational people, but we do believe in theocracy, uh, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are ideas uh, that um, the, the, these Protestant evangelicals who want to run back to Thomas um, as an alternative to a, a reformational view would be incredibly uncomfortable with what Thomas had to say about um, the unified ecclesiastical culture uh, mm. that he spent his entire career justifying. Um, and so there are, you, you're right to point out, Nathan, um, some very interesting anomalies um, in, the, in, the ref, in the Reformed community looking to Thomism as the response to our current cultural moment. And I think we'll save, we'll just sort of leave those hanging out there uh, in this episode mm -hmm. as a bit, of a, a bit of a teaser for us to go into in, in, in more detail in another episode. But I think some of those anomalies do need exploring and exposing a bit because there are some real, real inherent contradictions there if we actually hold on to a reformed confession. Um, that uh, we should be uh, mm -hmm. uh, embracing um, Thomas in such a fashion. Yeah, no, that's a uh, that's a worthwhile observation, Joe, and it's it's also just worth mentioning. Uh, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about the uh, just who Thomas was, but it's it's worth mentioning off the top that it is not. Uh, this is kind of the nature of 
of Thomas's thought. It is what it is, such that you know, in in the centuries past now, uh, you have myriad interpretations and several distinct schools of thought within Thomism. You can't yeah. uh, you can't just say, "Well, I'm a Thomist." Well, n- that's it's not even for somebody who who knows who Thomas was. It's not immediately apparent uh, what uh, what that entails. Yeah, and I think we want to stress that our primary interest um, on the podcast for cultural reformation, and as an, as the Ezra Institute in a discussion of Thomas Aquinas and Thomism, is not so much in in his um, elaborate idea of essences and the way he took over many Aristotelian categories for theological discourse. Um, I think our primary interest mm-hmm. is the implication of his thinking and how Christians have sought to apply it, both in the past and now in the present, as you say, in different ways, um, as a a sort of building block for a cultural response today. Um, uh, Thomas uh, has been looked at in past and present as now, you know, here is a person who uh, helps us to properly relate God our Christianity and culture, church and state. And that is the question that I think in this series we want to really dive into in detail because, as you say, a um, myriad of books have been written on Thomas Aquinas and there are numerous schools of Thomism and we don't want to bore the listener to death uh, while they're doing their ironing or driving their truck um, with mm-hmm. some of that. What we do want to do is explore um, how especially he's being used today um, yep. to uh, be the theologian who's going to help us deal with Christianity and culture, with church and state, with the application of the faith to our lives. Um, and um, I think that's where that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Yep, sounds good. We're looking forward to it. So before before we uh, get you to uh, to comment on those relevant questions, Joe, I'm uh, just going to take a minute, and for anyone who may be uh, hearing this for the first time, who who was Thomas Aquinas? We, we, you know, we've already mentioned that uh, practically every English speaker knows the name, but uh, what what does that entail, and uh, and who was this fellow? That's a yeah, that's that's valuable to uh, to have up front before we charge into what did he think. And so uh, this uh, this kind of took me back to uh, to some of my classroom days, but Aquinas Thomas Aquinas uh, was born. Uh, the details of his birth are not entirely clear, but twelve twenty four or twelve or twelve twenty five. Uh, he was the son of Italian nobility. He uh, the son of the Duke of Aquino. Uh, parenthetically, if you've ever wondered why. The uh, the thought named after him is called Thomism rather than Aquinism or something like that. It's because Aquino is the the region where he's from. It's not actually his family name. Thomas from Aquinas or from Aquino. Uh, so yeah, twelve twenty four or twenty five to twelve seventy four were his dates, and he his his family was Italian nobility. And they had arranged for him to have a, uh, a sort of cushy job for life uh, within the Catholic Church at, the, uh, at a wealthy monastery of Monte Cassino uh, in Italy. Uh, Tom- Thomas's religious convictions were, were sincere. Uh, they were fervent. And he, he opposed his family's will. And he rejected that, uh, that cushy church job that they had arranged for him. Uh, instead, he went off and he became a Dominican. And the Dominicans were an order of friars uh, who for, forbore, forswore the, uh, the ownership of property, lived very minimally, lived, uh, lived by, uh, by begging and by wandering around uh, teaching and relying on the, uh, the generosity of others. So he turned his turned his back on a life of uh, of wealth and comfort to uh to follow his convictions uh for the lord and became a dominican he studied studied theology in 
Paris, and he is probably best remembered in terms of his own corpus uh, for two main works. Uh, the first is the uh, the Summa Theologia, and that uh, that was written for theology students. It was a uh, not not exactly a systematic theology, but a a work of theology, a work of doctrine for the the instruction of of Christians and uh, and theology students. The other work was the Summa Contra Gentiles, and that was uh, you'd probably call it a like a handbook for missionaries or a uh, a handbook of early apologetics. Joe, you've mentioned Aquinas's uh, lasting impact on the field of apologetics already. And he, it's, uh, it's not for nothing. You know, he's got, he's got an 800 page book, uh, that, uh, is, is basically the, the model, the perfect form of rational or classical apologetics. Uh, that's the, uh, the Summa Contra Gentiles. It was a, uh, a work of apologetics. And the part of the reason why this was well, this this was a felt need, I suppose, in uh, in his context, is that one of the reasons is uh, we've you've also mentioned his uh, his reliance on and his uh, affinity for uh, the thought of Aristotle, and the, the part of the reason why Aquinas got so deep into Aristotle in particular is that he actually had a commission uh, to do that. Uh, from the church to to research and to rehabilitate and baptize effectively the thought of Aristotle. And the reason for that, uh, the reason why people thought that was important is because there were there have been several medieval Islamic attempts uh, at a recovery of Aristotle. There were medieval Islamic philosophers who had... Uh, recovered, preserved, and expanded on the work of Aristotle. And that work was being, uh, being shopped around as a, uh, you know, as one, one of the, one of the fine achievements of Islamic society. And, you know, if, uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to win a culture war or an idea war, you, you need to bring your own culture and your own ideas so if uh, if you're going up against an Islamic uh, recovery and depiction of of classical thought, you bring your own Christian version of that thought. So that uh, that was sort of uh, Aquinas's main work and his uh, some of the details highlights of his life on a in a drive by sketch. And Joe, where 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 we're going to be going or one one of the places we're going to be going is that, uh, or is this question, uh, that was a major, uh, medieval problem or a, a, a big, uh, a big question on the medieval mind is the, the question of the, the nature of the relationship between grace and nature, and especially on the natural ability to reason. So there, there in, I don't know, three minutes was, uh, was Aquinas uh, and uh, his life and some of his work. Uh, Joe, what's uh, again? That that's why he he has been important. That's been some of his lasting impact. What uh, what do we need to to know about or think about Aquinas and his thought uh, for today for the balance of uh, of this conversation? Well, I think one of the, one of the places where, and, and I think the reason a little bit of that biographical information is so important for people is that um, ideas uh, don't just sort of incarnate themselves randomly in abstract form in people's minds. Um, they are, you know, they're historically situated and um, we're all historically situated. Uh, and um, that means that there is always for all of us um, limitation to our to, to the reach of our minds and our and our understanding, um, and um, it's important, I think, for, for 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 listeners to first of all think about 
this whole challenge of of Christian apologetics, the Christian's engagement with the world, from the perspective of the Christian uh, emerging, the Christian church emerging 2,000 years ago, uh, to, to begin to understand Aquinas' situation. So initially the gospel is being preached to the Jews, and then, of course, you see in the book of Acts that the gospel is spreading to the Gentile nations. Paul himself, right back there in Acts 17, is interacting with the, the leading pagan philosophers of his era, um, some of whom become followers of the Lord Jesus. And we know that um, from the book of uh, Philippines that, um, the, that the message of the gospel was penetrating even Caesar's, Caesar's household in the life and ministry of the apostle Paul. But the context into which this gospel is arriving is the Greco-Roman world. And the Greco-Roman world is one um, of uh, civilization building, of, uh, of an immense history, of a vast empire, and of a great deal of philosophical reflection. And this is something that Augustine, uh, who, would have, who certainly Aquinas refers to a fair bit, but departs from substantially, um, reflected on in City of God, in his great apologetic work, City of God, uh, which is in and of itself interesting because imagine you are a first or second century Gentile living in Rome or let's say Corinth or some outpost of the Roman Empire. You hear the gospel, you're an educated person, maybe you're a teacher of rhetoric, <laughs> like an Augustine, and you hear the gospel for the first time and the truth about Christ, and you encounter this, this, this book, the Bible. And uh, like an Augustine, uh, and this is interesting to, to, um, to read men like Augustine, of course, his Confessions and the City of God in particular, um, because you find a man who discovers Christianity, the Bible, after several false starts with various sects and so on, and he initially sees the Bible very much as, 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 especially the Older Testament, as kind of primitive. It's kind of visceral, sort of base. Um, this doesn't seem like the elevated philosophical thinking of pagan world that he was accustomed to. It was very earthy, very practical. Um, and, uh, of course, Augustine goes through this process where he surrenders himself to Christ and to his word. But throughout his thought Augustine battles and wrestles with um, the, the challenge of integrating the fullness of God's revealed word, Christianity, into his life as a thinker, as a teacher of rhetoric, and then simply as a Christian. What does it mean for a Christian now? This is the, it's still part of the early life of the church. So, you know, obviously, first, second, third century, fourth century century, you've got these Christians who are engaging the pagan world, and there's a variety of possible responses. And um, Augustine um, makes several attempts at a commentary on the book of Genesis um, to try and, as he's trying to shake, shake himself free of various Greek philosophical assumptions and categories, doesn't fully manage to, publishes his retractions at the end of his life. And I, I don't want to digress this too far onto Augustine, but I think the illustration of Augustine is important. Um, and he's, he's wrestling as a man, as a Christian, but as a Christian thinker and how to resource the church, how to resource other Christians in their thinking about this colossus of, of pagan culture and how Christianity is meant to interact with it. And actually, Augustine, interestingly enough, um, doesn't attempt any major radical reforms of the Greco-Roman culture into which he was born. He has he has a fairly critical posture towards the Roman Empire in the city of God. But for the most part, even Augustine accepted the political status quo. And this is one of the dangers of primitivism that we often talk about on our show, which is that, you know, when people say, oh, we've just got to get back to the early church, um, well, actually, there's a danger with that. Um, the kingdom of God is making progress in history. Our understanding is developing. It's being enriched in terms of the word of God. We, we are, as reformed people, we're always in reform. 
We're always seeking to reform ourselves to scripture. Augustine was trying to do that. Um, and despite his best efforts, uh, he accepted pretty much the political status quo. He, he tried to sort of devise a, th- a synthesis himself between Christianity and classical, classical culture. Um, and uh, you look at his works, for example, on Christian teaching and so on and so forth. You find him struggling with what are the imp- full implications of the Christian faith and the word of God for culture and political life. Now, there were other church fathers, and you see a that you see a variation in people like Tertullian and Tatian, who wanted a, almost a wholesale rejection of classical culture. They recognized there was a core logical truth there. They recognized that if Jesus Christ is Lord, we need a fresh start. Uh, we have to um, think through all of these issues from a, a Christian standpoint. But that's incredibly difficult, and you cannot. Um, rid yourself and wipe away history. You can't rid yourself of the culture around you. And what Christ requires of us is to engage in terms of his word in the fullness of his truth with the paganism or the Islam or whatever hostility might be around us in our culture to the gospel and engage with it, engage with those who represent the prevailing perspective. So Tertullian and Tatian were, were, were mistaken there. You can't just throw all of culture overboard. But then you had others like Justin Martyr and others who, um, in trying to convince their pagan friends, basically, doing apologetics, you know, they were the apologists, trying to convince their pagan friends of the truth of the gospel, thought that the best way was to really kind of just show that, well, you know, the logos in the gospel of John is reason it's it's the it's the logos of pagan thought you know christ is the the revelation of true reason and efforts were made in this kind of uh, building bridges into pagan culture a lot of these apologists these sort of christian intellectuals they went to the other extreme of thinking they could really baptize all of this paganism um uh, as uh, and christianize it without uh, a root and branch renewal of thought in terms of the truth of the gospel. Now, how's that relevant to um, Aquinas? Well, obviously you're fast forwarding from Augustine, you're fast forwarding seven, eight centuries. And uh, you're in this era after the, the great Christian thinker Anselm, who's considered the father of scholasticism, um, a, a, a sort of method of um, Christian teaching, Christian s- uh, synthesis. and um, Augustine, uh, Aquinas really becomes the most prominent of these high medieval scholastic teachers. And Ryan, you've explained how, in a certain sense, he's not unlike modern scholars today who might be given a commission. Uh, We have um, theologians today who might be commissioned to write a book or commissioned to write a series of commentaries. And here you have a, a sincere Christian who's commissioned by the church hierarchy to to take um, Aristotle because of concerns of the inroads that Islam was making in its use of Aristotle. And the, the, the church is beginning to think, well, here's this great resource in ancient Greek philosophy, and we're not adequately utilizing it, and the Muslims are. So um, let's commission one of our thinkers to, to interpret Aristotle for the church. In that sense, Aquinas is following his job description. So we have to be, uh, I want to be sympathetic first to Aquinas. And say, here's a sincere Christian. Uh, in many respects, he's he's not just a, a theologian; he's an apologist, um, and he's in in many respects trying to offer an apologetic for the Christianized culture in which he lived, with critics of the church. He's engaging in an apologetic. He is trying to, in a certain sense, justify the ecclesiastical culture of the. Roman Catholic Church in its hierarchy, the papal theocracy, the unified ecclesiastical culture of the time, and not just the church, but the social order that surrounds it. Um, he's seeking to justify it, and he, his main resource for this justification is Aristotle. And uh, this means that he's trying to justify serfdom. He's trying to justify feudalism. Um, he's trying to 
justify the the role that the Pope uh, now has. And he's trying to justify the idea that basically the Roman church under its papal head is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And that would take us back to Nathan's earlier comments and questions uh, about, well, um, there's a certain irony here in evangelicals looking to this Roman apologist. There's a reason why he's the angel of the the Roman church. He's He's the angelic doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. Romanism has looked to um, uh, Aquinas right through to the present day for much of the justification of its theological ideas and of its um, uh, social ideas and the role of the church. And um, you could certainly argue that the modern Roman Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity owes its uh, roots to, which we'll come on to in another episode, we don't want to confuse people, but it owes its roots to the teaching of Thomas Aquinas. So you've got, he's born into a time of the factual supremacy of ecclesiastical authority. And he's given this task really of um, providing an an ideology of power um, for the Western Western church. Um, And that's quite the task where, and, and of course you don't have the, you, you look to the Bible, you're not going to find a justification for uh, a feudal society and a, uh, and a, and a papal hierarchy and theocracy. Um, and therefore, the, the, the resources of um, Greek philosophy, Ryan, um, of Aristotle, of Aristotle's view of the state, of Aristotle's view of society, um, are taking over the the Greek idea of nature as form and matter, and uh, the highest natural institution uh, being the state, and then seeing um, Aquinas developing this view that, um, in a certain sense, there's sort of two levels of reality and two levels of knowledge. Um, uh, there's the natural and the supernatural, um, and that things like the state and culture in these areas that that man in his current condition he may have lost an initial gift of grace that was there prior to the fall a certain supernatural ability to contemplate god and have peculiar insight uh via his reason uh into the nature of god and various other gifts of grace he's he, he may have lost that unbelieving man may have lost that but his reason functions adequately, as the Greek philosophers believed, and uh, he was uh, man's reason was in contact with an eternal idea of reason that was true for the whole universe, and therefore perhaps we could think about the state, about culture, about human society without direct reference or peculiar reference to the Bible, to special revelation, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That was a supernatural area of revelation, things like the Trinity and so on. And that might be necessary for, for a full understanding of redemption. He didn't deny that. Um, but uh, man's, man's reason um, was um, only tainted. He, there, was a, there was a loss of a special gift, but it was adequate for the task of dealing with the issues of nature, of culture, of politics. And so um, you see a sincere Christian man commissioned by the church with a task, uh, to 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 take hold of Aristotle and interpret him for the church, and he does so, and as a result, he comes up with, amongst other things, essentially a view of church and state, uh, social theory, um, based on this synthesis idea of nature and grace, taking over a Greek view of nature, uh, uh, which we'll talk about in another episode, what exactly that meant and why they had such dramatic implications for he took over essentially a pagan view of nature and tried to weld to it the Christian idea of grace. This was the synthesis he was attempting, that he'd been commissioned to attempt. Um, And he did so in very much the context of Christendom, where the vast majority of people would have professed the Christian faith, um, and where it was more a project of justifying the existing social situation, the existing cultural situation, the existing place of the church um, in that hierarchical structure, and Aristotle provided those resources. 
much more than it was a project of saying, let's go back to the Word of God, to Scripture, and ask ourselves, is there such a thing here as a distinctly and uniquely integrated Christian world and life view rooted in the biblical teaching about creation, man's fall into sin, and his redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a way that we can think about the unity and totality of our life in terms of one revelation of God, a unified revelation of God in Christ, in creation, and Scripture, um, that wasn't Aquinas' project. Aquinas's project was to justify the existing situation and take Aristotle and, and utilize his resources to that end. And I think that's where we need um, a good deal of sympathy with Thomas Aquinas. He was a, he was a brave man. He was an incredibly intelligent man. Um, a brilliant man and undoubtedly a sincere Christian who, despite you know, being resourced by Aristotle, did not want Aristotle's totalitarian, totalitarian state really. He recognized God's authority ultimately over princes and rulers. Um, he didn't want a radically stoic understanding of uh, natural law he wanted to link it and tie it in a synthetic way uh, to biblical law, to God's moral law. He wanted to try and he wanted to see uh, the Decalogue as kind of a logical um, uh, implication of natural law, as it were. So there was an attempt to to try and hold what really are two mutually incompatible ideas together, and um, uh, and maybe that would lead us into a sort of final um, uh, comment or two about, well, what are the positives we can say about Thomas Aquinas' project, um, given the situation he was in? That sounds like a great way to end, uh, end the show, Joe. So why don't you go ahead and do that for us before we wrap up? Well, um, it, it is important, you know, as, we, as, as Ryan was saying earlier, to um, not straw man. Uh, the discussion around Thomism. Um, uh, it 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 would be easy to do, um, and uh, and and tempting to do to sort of uh, just just uh, write the uh, man off, but we can't do that. Um, he was trying to provide uh, the Church of Lord Jesus Christ with a theory of Christian relations to the world of culture and politics, which it had lacked. For a very long time. Um, you know, the synthesis culture of nature grace uh, that he inherited was one that he really inherited right the way back to Augustine, where, as I said, there was no, Augustine gave no really critical appraisal of the political situation of the, of the Roman world. They accepted the status quo, and let's be fair to them. They had, <laughs> they had some pretty big things to be concerned about and worried about. And, um, you know, you can't accomplish everything in one lifetime. Augustine, another one of the greats, a giant of the church, um, a giant of Christian history, a giant of a thinker. But no thinker can cover everything. And one of the things that Augustine did not go on to do was develop a biblically robust idea of uh, the relation of the, Christ the Christian to culture, of, of the church and the state. Um, and so... We can say that one of the one of the positives about Aquinas is that look, here was a man who was at least trying to do that. Um, he was at least trying to, which is more than we can say for a lot of modern evangelicals, to be quite frank. <laughs> it, uh, uh, even some reformed people. Here was a man who was at least trying to say and think through what is the relationship of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, who claims universal empire. Let's be clear about that who claims universal empire over all of life, over all kings, all nations. How do we begin to think about that in terms of the relationship of the Christian to culture and the church and the state? So let's first commend Aquinas for thinking seriously about that and being concerned with that issue, uh, which so many have, have not been before. He was also concerned to make sure that um, the Christian was engaging the critics of Christianity, so like other apologists before him, as much as um, I believe his his apologetic project um, failed and is misguided, at least here was a man concerned with building uh, 
an apologetic project. He, he was seeking to defend the faith, to defend the lordship of of Christ, to 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 defend uh, the claims that uh, the scripture is making. In some cases, a misunderstanding of scripture, but nonetheless, the claims that the scripture is making. So, um, here's 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 a man first concerned with Christian culture, and. Uh, uh, we might even say that that's even that that goes even further than, than saying he was concerned with the relationship of Christianity and culture. He was concerned with Christian culture. Now, let's uh, let's say two cheers for for Aquinas there then, because again, how many evangelicals today and Protestants today, even some who claim Aquinas for themselves, are even remotely concerned with the idea of Christian culture? They're not. Now. We'll, in, a, in another episode, we'll talk about the anomaly there of how is it possible that a man concerned with Christian culture like Aquinas ends up laying the seeds of de-Christianization. And uh, I think that's one that perhaps we, we, we ought to come back to in, in the very next episode, um, is, is how do you go from pursuing Christian culture to the, the seedbed of de-Christianization um, in uh, it, it, with the with the foundations that your thought is laying, but 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 let's recognize here the value of Aquinas. Here's a man seeking the Christianization of culture. Now he's seeking it through in a misguided way. He's seeking it through basically the uh, the ecclesiastical rule of culture, of conflating the Roman Church with the kingdom of God itself. And essentially believing that you 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 know to coin a phrase you have to really sprinkle the pixie dust of the of the institutional church over all of cultural life if it would be Christian. Um, but but here is a man concerned with Christian culture, with applying the faith. A third thing I would add is that here is a man concerned with the authority of God and the authority of his church, uh, with actually with bishops with churchmen speaking truth to power. With, with leaders in the church openly criticizing and challenging uh, um, rulers and kings and princes, with challenging political authority. Again, how many modern Christians, Protestants, evangelicals, can we say are concerned today with challenging in terms of the authority of God and in the name of Christ, um, churchmen challenging the state? As we look back over the last two to three years, in particular, um, we can only hang our heads in shame collectively as a church in terms of the number of churchmen willing to speak up and challenge political leaders to limit their authority, something Aquinas would certainly have done. And then fourthly, and finally, I would say here was also a man concerned with teasing out and recognizing that God has a law for human institutions. Now, um, again, we would say that in his understanding and his attempt to to port over pagan ideas of natural law and ideas of eternal law, that um, he was misguided, and and that the, the results were were less than what they needed to be from a Christian standpoint. Having said that. Just by believing and recognizing that God did create all things, there's a slight anomaly in Augustine's thought, Aquinas's thought there, which we'll have to come back to about that God not really creating the principle of form and matter, but at least everything visible that's created, he did believe that God created it all, and and that therefore God has a law for creation. Um, and that includes human life and social institutions. So here we have another uh, check mark uh, of of gratitude for or, for Aquinas, despite our differences with him, is that here was a man concerned with saying, God must have a law for for the various aspects of human life, including human social life, including human political life, including family life. That that God by virtue of being the creator, has a law for these areas of life. And so, again, we would want to commend Aquinas for being concerned with and teaching that God has a law to govern his creation. Um, and he has a law for, in, uh, for human institutions as well. Um, 
And so uh, I think that that's an appropriate place to start this miniseries is with gratitude, with is with a recognition that even when Christians um, get things wrong, and we, of course, have the benefit of, of hindsight and historical development to be able to identify such errors, even if they are partially right, they benefit and bless the culture. For all Aquinas's errors and mistakes, in, in my view, in apologetics, in natural theology, in social and political theory, in spite of those errors, just by aiming at a defense of the faith and declaring God's authority over the state, and by talking about God's law for society, even in a distorted form, it was still uh, a blessing to the West. Uh, Christendom and the unified ecclesiastical culture of the medieval world is part of our inheritance, without which we wouldn't be here today, but without which we wouldn't uh, have, have, have gotten to the Reformation, uh, without which we wouldn't have inherited the institutions that we've inherited and known the freedom and the blessings that we have. So we can say that um, just as even when an unbeliever obeys God's word or God's law, even by accident <laughs> or or out purely out of um, uh, a sense of um, practicality, instrumentalism, a utilitarian notion that this will probably be, this will lead to a good outcome for me, um, will be blessed. Well, even within the context of, we might say, the errors of, uh, of a classical apologetic and um, social theory, nonetheless, God has been able to use uh, a sincere believer aiming at something important um, for the good of his kingdom. Of course, lots of negatives came with it. Don't get me wrong. This is not a, 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 an endorsement of Aquinas' thought, but it is a, an attempt to humbly recognize that the great Augustine made all kinds of mistakes. The great Aquinas made all kinds of mistakes, and as have uh, great leaders and thinkers since. Um, and God has still graciously used them. And so for his concern for Christian culture, his concern for applying the faith, his concern for defending the faith, his concern for the authority of God and his church in society, and his concern for God's law for human and social institutions, we can commend Aquinas. But let me conclude uh, with a quotation from one of my favorite Christian thinkers, the English Anglican Hebden Taylor, a reformational um, thinker and pastor and leader in the last century, uh, who actually nonetheless uh, gave um, this caution. He said this, and uh, this will um, balance what I've just said about Aquinas, I'm sure. And I quote now, Thomistic, the Thomistic attempt to synthesize the wine of the gospel, this is Hebden Taylor, to synthesize the wine of the gospel with the oil of Aristotelianism has been the most misguided effort in the history of human thought. Far from baptizing Aristotle into Christ as he thought, Aquinas merely succeeded in opening the floodgates to modern humanistic apostasy and the Leviathan godless state, end quote. Now, that might be a, a slight overstatement, uh, it might be an exaggeration on his part for effect. Um, it's probably not the most misguided effort in the history of human thought, um, but it's certainly one of them. Uh, the, the, because what we will see did happen. Um, the unintended consequence, we should say, of much of Aquinas' project has uh, led to the opening of the floodgates of modern humanistic apostasy. And so we would say that the notion that the answer to our current cultural crisis is to flee back to Aquinas and uh, his rationalistic, um, scholastic answers um, for culture um, would be misguided. Right. So it, uh, I guess it, it should come as, uh, as no surprise to listeners that, uh, that we would wind up differing from Aquinas on uh, on many of his conclusions but uh, as you've said Joe uh, grateful for many of his his starting principles and his aims and certainly a man who had the uh, the courage of his convictions well that's uh, 
as we've said a few times, this is this is was this was never going to get solved or unpacked in one episode. Uh, mercifully, and uh, you got to love what you do. We're gonna we're gonna get back to this. We get to, we get to do this every week. Yes. So it's we're exciting uh, stuff. Absolutely. So I'm uh, I'm personally looking forward to uh, to continuing to tease this out, and I hope that uh, that you all are as well, Joe and Nate. It's been uh, it's been good to uh, to be with you here, and from all of us, uh, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him alone be glory forever. We we'll look forward to being with you again next week.